Hey, it's Imogen from Square Peg. So in March 2018, I was down in Melbourne visiting the other half of the Australian-based Square Peg team. And last minute, I decided to step into a meeting with Paul. He said it was with the two founders of a new startup who were hoping to build the world's most enjoyable mortgage. Now, these words, enjoyable and mortgage, don't usually go together. So I was curious, if not just a touch skeptical, about how the meeting would go. Now, in truth, a lot of the meeting went over my head. I've never bought a house or spent much time considering how mortgages get funded on the back end, but also because they'd found a willing sparring partner in Paul who happily dug into the mechanics and specifics. But what I grasped immediately was that Nathan and Michael were a very special set of founders, and I left the meeting with the unshakable belief that they were destined to do really well, and hopefully that we'd invest. On today's episode, we talk with both of them about their journey to build Athena, a digital mortgage company that is radically changing the Australian mortgage market for the better. Meet Michael. My childhood's a tale of two sort of stories. So the first half uh, was in South Africa. I was born in South Africa and my family migrated to Australia when I was 10. And I think it was when Biko died in jail. My mum was just like, this is, we're just not being told the truth about this place. She's like, we're, we're out, we're, we're moving. And my, my dad came to Australia and he wanted to find a job. And this is in 1983. And he, he spent three weeks looking for a job. And eventually the job he got was in Melbourne. So that's where we settled. And so very fond memories from when I was younger and, and of moving over. But it was a, a daunting thing because my parents virtually started over from the age of about 40. And there's four kids. So we had a big family and we were six of us and we didn't know anyone else in the city of three million. And that was just the six of us. I mean, Australia's a very hospitable place and culturally pretty similar. So for someone like me, you know, it's not like I was a refugee coming off a boat into a place where I didn't speak the language. It wasn't that sort of level of hardship. So, you know, I think from early high school, year seven onwards, I felt pretty at home in this country. And again, it's the wonderful thing about Australia is there's so many first generation immigrants, there's so I think compared to anywhere else in the world, there's, there's the opportunity to come here and make it in, in one generation. And Michael didn't have lowly ambitions. So straight out of uni, I worked for a consulting firm, CVA, a boutique little strategy firm. And um, I was working there during the whole dot-com frenzy, right, in the late 90s. And I got a call one day from Damien Waller. Now, I knew Damien from Study Engineering together at Monash. And he's like, I'm watching all this happen. I want to start a business. And he got together a group of four or five people. And we weren't sure what business. And we, we all were doing other things at the time, right? We, were all, we all had jobs. And we were meeting once a week in an office that we had access to in the city. And we, we used to brainstorm. And to give you a sense, I mean, some of the ideas were like how to solve Y2K issues, right? So this is 1999 <laughs> we're talking, right? Literally. And, you know, Damien was pretty forward thinking because some, some of the pieces that he was onto back then were... We're really ahead of the time. And the treasurer at the time was Peter Costello. And he came out in the budget in 1999 and he announced a slew of measures aimed at you know, increasing the number of Australians who had private health insurance. And we just knew that that was going to be a big deal in, in private health insurance. So we said, okay, that's the idea. Let's go for it. I was involved in writing the business case, raising the money, signing on the first few insurers, and it was a dot-com boom. So we actually found it easier than we probably should have to raise money for a bunch of kids who didn't know anything in their 20s. But after we'd raised the money and sort of the business was kicking to where we had to actually quit our jobs, I was offered by my company to go and they were going to pay for me to go and study my MBA overseas. 
And so I went down that route and I wasn't really involved in building the business of iSelect. So uh, after that initial co-founding journey, I wasn't really doing the hard yards. And so it was an itch that I didn't really scratch until Athena was that piece around actually rolling your sleeves up and building the business as opposed to just the the very initial part of it. So although I'm a co-founder of iSelect, I feel as though I didn't really do it properly until, until Athena. Michael's MBA was at Harvard. And while iSelect was a tempting way to spend a few years, his heart wasn't really in it. Plus, his work at CVA was really enjoyable. And in the end, he's confident he made the right call. Well, CVA was an amazing place. I was there 13 years and I worked and lived in all sorts of different places around the world, in in Shanghai, in Paris, in New York, in Chicago, in, in Seoul, in Tokyo. You know, I didn't really have a fixed address for the first eight years of my career because I was traveling all around the world. And it was an amazing experience, right? Working in different industries, in different cultures, getting immersed in different places, traveling in a really unique way because you're working and living with locals. And CVA was a really quantitative and a firm that really valued first principles thinking. So it wasn't a sort of a come in and run a process type firm. It was a really try and get to the bottom of the issue firm. So I, I learned so much in in that piece. I mean, the flip side of of CVA was because I was spending so much time outside of Australia, I really didn't have a proper grounding in my home country. I didn't have a, you know, a business network. I hadn't developed that network in this country. You know, that makes it difficult. And so with the decision firming to come home to Australia, the place he moved to as a 10-year-old, he started to consider how to make a graceful re-entry. And one of the big four banks seemed to be calling him home. Yeah, I mean, that approached me three or four times over the journey and tried to recruit me into NAB and eventually I was sort of went begging for a job. You know, the piece for me was really how am I going to build a successful consulting franchise in this country without the networks that I needed to do that? And I wasn't really a rainmaker type sales guy in a consulting role. And so it was really facing into the prospect of always being on an aeroplane and getting in a vicious cycle of not spending enough time at home to develop out the business at home. And then ended up having to work on overseas projects and so on. So it, was really, it really was wanting to settle down in Melbourne that was a primary driver for that. We're going to leave Michael at NAB for a moment and travel back in time to meet Nathan. So my family come from uh, country New South Wales, so up near the Queensland border. My mum uh, was youngest of five and her dad died when she was quite young. So I had to sort of leave the dairy farm and went through a bit of an odyssey and then uh, My dad's older sister had polio, was a quadriplegic, and so they spent all their time going from tiny towns into the city and back for the health stuff. And so, you know, we we were the first generation coming into Sydney in in the big smoke. I was actually born in London. They were on their big, exciting adventure overseas, studying and doing some things together, but then come back and had a very conventional but very lovely childhood in the suburbs of Sydney, basically having all the things that they would have loved to have had in their own childhood they were able to give to their own kids. Nathan was also an ambitious kid, and his career before joining Michael at NAB, where they met, is pretty extraordinary. Here's the highlights reel. I'm in awe of people, you know, like Michael and so many of the founders that we meet that sort of jump right into startup and entrepreneurship. For me, it was a bunch of much more conventional type choices. So going from studying law at uni and loving all of that component to going and working for, for Justice Santo. In some ways, the aspiration when you're stepping into law to get that sort of opportunity. But for me, it was a bit of a shock in a way because you end up sitting in this courtroom with a bunch of mainly blokes in wigs and and silly gowns bickering with each other and sort of think, is this a career? Is this something I want to do forever? 
And um, so pretty quickly worked out that I love the theatre, but I don't want to be sort of doing legal theatre for my whole life. You know, then went and worked at Freehills. So again, a, a great firm, but pretty quickly worked out that path of just repeating the same set of documents in big financing transactions time after time versus actually climbing into the to the real business problems. I worked out that was something that would be much more interesting to me. So pretty quickly switched over to work at one of the consulting firms, so BCG, did time in, in Sydney office there. Like Michael, ended up loving the idea of going overseas and studying. And so my wife and I, five days after we got married, moved to New York and, and spent the next eight years studying, working for one of the consulting firms, um, spending time at, at Citigroup as well. And Nathan loved consulting. Unlike law, which seemed to be about reducing risk, consulting was about how to maximise for opportunity. It was also where he learned a lesson in team building. What consulting does give you is this apprenticeship where you're given this really diverse set of business problems and you work out pretty quickly that it's all about the team that you assemble on day one that's the difference between an absolutely fabulous project where you do some great things versus a dismal grind of pain. And doing that rinse repeat and suddenly working out that talent and team is actually 90% of the answer and that with the right group of people around you, there is nothing that you can't go and do. And so for me, that was the big learning that early on, it's almost picking who you work for. And then later on, it's your opportunity to assemble teams for yourself. And just as for Michael, who'd spent years overseas with work, Nathan and his family wanted to come home. NAB was really then just a natural entry point when moving back to Australia. Fortunately, just before the GFC in 2007, some ways not the obvious thing in the world when you want to live in Sydney to go and work for a big Melbourne-based bank, but um, knew a bunch of people who are working there, you know, heard some really great things about the culture and where they were going, and so stepped into uh, running strategy and corporate development for, for Australia. And it was here, heading up a pretty significant part of the bank's strategy to future-proof, that Nathan founded his first startup. For me, it was the big surprise going from being a staff role, you're sort of advising other people what they should do, trying to operate by influence, and then getting an opportunity to found a business that's just part of the strategy portfolio. So we set up NAB Trade, worked with a great team over a seven-year period, building out a number of different online verticals around you know, Aussie shares and cash and margin lending and the like, and frankly, just worked out how much I loved that business building journey rather than being the have a big meeting, how do you kind of work out the strategy, hand it over to someone else to go and do it, to actually have that group and build that from the ground up and then make, make that happen. And frankly, I was addicted from there. So for me, a lot of people almost know very early in their careers what they want to do. For me, it was very much a bit of a, a voyage of discovery and almost by accident working out just how much I love that journey of building something and being part of launching and growing a company. Along with his team, Nathan built the NabTrade platform from scratch mostly operating outside the traditional structures of the bank. And it was an experience that forever changed his life. Beyond the occasional drama, both Nathan and Michael agreed that they were mostly loving their jobs. It was challenging and creative, and the team was world-class. But they were also starting to grasp the challenges and sheer complexity of working in a large business with multiple products, services, and focuses. Where NAB was exceptionally good at was responding to a crisis. When they went into a wartime mode, a wartime cabinet mode, they could do things very, very well, very, very quickly and look at their response to the pandemic. You know, they sent the whole workforce home, closed down two buildings, and they've done an exceptionally good job of that. 
And the challenge for them is in peacetime, you know, all of the bureaucracy creeps back in and this is the complexity of a large organization. It's not unique to our former employer, but I was in a meeting once and we were talking about centralizing the recruitment function. And they wanted to take recruiters out of the contact center and put them next to people who were recruiting the next executive general manager from Egon Zende type thing, you know? And I was like, well, do you really know what's happening? There's two different problems altogether. In the contact center, you've got, you know, teams of young people, they've got a demand forecasting function, they sit next to the recruitment function, and then they sit next to the training function. It's kind of like a machine and they turn over a lot of staff. It's just in the nature of a contact center. And it's like, it's all recruitment. So they pulled the recruitment function out of the contact center and put it in some head office function miles away with absolutely zero synergies. And, you know, sure enough, six months later, they had 50 vacancies they couldn't fill in the contact center. They'd just broken that machine. So it's this point around uh, the instinct to centralize and control the company through those central levers is almost always the wrong decision. And where you saw um, those organizations work well was when they distributed responsibility and they really gave and empowered the teams. And they did that sometimes versus when they sort of went to this Politburo style central planning thing. My favorite story, though, is one that Michael told us about the new office build in Melbourne. The one I go to, I mean, there's lots of funny stories, and I'm sure that every organization has a version, but they were organizing a new building and they were going around working out everyone's requirements for the new building. And I was in a meeting and someone said, well, you know, we've got the bicycle lockers for the people who want to cycle to work. And what we discovered is the council can't give us permission to build this cycling bridge or whatever to access it. So cyclists are going to have to cross the road. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, so we're thinking of building an online training course that everyone who gets a cycling locker has to go into this online training course and pass it in order that they get a, a locker. And that's on how to cross a road. I'm like, people are going to have to cross lots of roads coming into work. The fact that the final road they also have to cross, is that just up to them? And so I managed to nip that one in the bud because I was there. But you can imagine this sort of the yes minister style policies that creep into a place when you don't have people vigilant. I would personally be interested to see what kind of training goes into crossing the road, but perhaps I'm by myself on that one. Similar to Michael, Nathan was also reflecting on his time in a large organization, and he kept coming back to this debate as to how best he could solve hard problems. Big companies are not always the best place to solve big problems is, for me, a big insight. That often when you haven't worked at a large company, you're way more afraid of the competition from them than when you have and know, understand how things work. And so I was somewhat lucky that the part of the bank that I was working in, we were assembling something completely new. So we were bringing in from outside product teams, digital and design, call center operations, pretty much the end-to-end -end of a little mini business. But what was always conscious of is the fact that it felt like I was going through life where on one foot I had a Nike sneaker and I could move at pace and on the other foot I had a gumboot, which was when you had to link back into corporates and make decisions. And it was always the dream to say, wouldn't it be nice to have a Nike sneaker on both feet? What would that look like? And I don't underplay because a lot of what we were doing was incredibly valuable, right? So it was a, a real focus on how do you make customer experience design really work? How do you think about product in the concept of regulated markets? What does a scale business look like? And in many of those have been such valuable lessons and many of the people that we've worked with along those journeys as well. But at the same time, it was also what do you need to do very, very differently? And so the challenge in many large organisations is the people who really understand the problem and the people with authority to make the decision are not the same people and even they're not even particularly close to each other. 
And so you end up with layers of middleware committees and PowerPoint slides and all these other components versus this world to say, how do you get these teams where you know people who are working in the detail are empowered to make decisions and do things very quickly? And so things that you can get done in six hours that would take six months somewhere else, but actually having experienced both sides of that coin. And that to some extent is why when we were talking about a market that was as large as mortgages, that's sort of the core business for large banks, we're talking about going after the prime part of that market, which is, again, is their core business. You know, lots of people would say, well, avoid that. That's where the big players are. And we're almost sort of saying, well, we're happy to go in and dance with the, with the hippos because we're really confident that we can go and get some things done at a pace that's very different and create a proposition for customers that's very different, despite that competition from, from such large organisations. And while COVID has perhaps changed this, I'm going to take a punt here and say that for the most part, it's actually kind of hard to transition work friendships to real life friendships. There seems to be a context gap or a professionalism hurdle that we all face with work people. The author means that your close friends in the office, the people you can find in and really feel connected to, are relative strangers once you've crossed the threshold to the outside world. For Nathan and Michael, they spent over a decade transitioning their friendship from work to life. And for the most part, they think this is fundamental to why they work so well today. We didn't directly work on the same part of the business necessarily. We were in the same leadership team and now trade quite different to the, well, quite separate, living in different cities. So it's interesting. We just, we had that strong relationship, despite the fact we weren't directly working on the same topics for very much of the time. So it was just one of those um, like-minded, you could talk a broad range of topics, not just work, politics, history, all these sorts of things. We're very similar in that we, we love the breadth of conversation, I think. That's possibly why we ended up in business together. The one thing that Michael thinks they didn't bond over is the great Australian sport of Aussie rules, or for detractors of the sport, aerial ping pong. No, Nathan couldn't care less about the AFL. (laughs) Nathan remembers something similar. Mike is someone that hit it off with on day one because there is interesting when, whether it's sort of the work talk about actually being able to focus on the right things, make the easy things easy and, and really have then the interesting conversations about the really hard and challenging problems, but also someone who always has calm, don't get freaked out by stuff that's going on, that twinkle in the eye, the sense of fun. Mike's been someone I've you know, gravitated to you know, from day one. And so you know, for me, when it came to an opportunity to go and do something a bit different, the idea of like, picking a partner where that would be such a solid foundation you know, we'd both been there for about 10 years, probably knew each other well for about six of those years. That was an incredibly solid foundation to kind of go and found something together. And while they were bonding over American politics and history, they'd often discuss the world as they were seeing it through a financial lens. And the mortgage industry, that is the financial instrument you use to purchase a home without having 100% of the cash up front, is an area of the financial world that just kept piquing their interest. The Australian mortgage market is very large, very profitable. Australia is quite unique because, you know, bank balance sheets are dominated by mortgages in a way that bank balance sheets in other countries aren't necessarily dominated by mortgages. You know, some people joke that Australian banks look more like building societies than than actual banks. Okay, this is kind of a niche joke about how building societies function as mostly deposit-taking institutions as opposed to banks that typically have lots and lots of financial products and services. And I can only imagine that this joke heals with a very specific set of people. Anyway, back to Michael. 
more than 90% of mortgages in Australia are written by the banks, and that's not the case in overseas markets. Mortgages are dominated by face-to-face channels in this country, so lots of bankers and brokers, but very, very few mortgages done properly over digital and direct channels. And the pricing is very, very opaque. You can have two people in very similar circumstances being charged completely different interest rates. And so there's a lot that's broken there. There's a lot to be disrupted there. And I asked Nathan to expand on just why mortgages are so important and how broken the existing system is. Start with the great Australian dream. So for non-Australian listeners, Australia's probably got one of the highest median wealth per capita in the world. And a big part of that has been real estate. We're a country that's population's growing very quickly and much higher proportion than usual actually end up owning a home. And so for most people owning a home, then being able to fund that via borrowing is, is a big part of that story. And there was a big disruption that happened in the early 90s. So, you know, banks had owned the mortgage business. There was some innovations that happened at that time where mortgage brokers, you know, used to have to buy from a bank branch, went to being mortgage brokers and used to fund with bank balance sheets and it became about securitization. And overnight, banking in Australia went from being a 4% spread business to being a 2% spread business because of the competition. So all of a sudden, the deal available to Aussie borrowers became dramatically better. And so you had all of this competition come in over a period of the next 10 years, but all unwound during the GFC. And it's almost been the empire strikes back where suddenly the banks are well over 90% of all of the housing credit in Australia. Very unusual when it's uh, non-banks are over half the market in the US and sort of 30% of the market in most other, other countries. And so when you sort of ask the question of banking went from being 4% to a 2% spread business in the early 90s, and then for 25 years, it's been 2% spread. And you think about all the things that have happened since that period of time that should have made this process much more efficient if you're using technology. And we're simply asking the question around, how do you go from being a 2% spread business to being 70 basis point business, 0.7%? And what does that translate into? That translates into a much better deal for a borrower. The other dimension is that we've gone from Australia being one of the lowest indebted nations, when here we're talking about just how much debt people have as households, as a percentage of GDP. And then again, over the last two decades, we've gone from being well below average amongst OECD to one of the highest indebted countries in the world. So people are borrowing a lot more. And so we came in with this idea to say, this idea around using technology to take cost capital complexity out of this business translates into a better deal. But what it can also do is help people pay off their home loan faster, help people get out of debt, help people manage what is their biggest financial commitment so much smarter. Okay, so to recap, most people use mortgages to fund the gap between the cost of a house and the amount of cash in the bank. About 35% of all homes in Australia are mortgaged, and of those with a mortgage, people refinance or change providers on average every five to six years. And this is largely because they're just not happy. The Royal Commission into Banking that happened a couple of years ago revealed that there was a major problem in particular with how legacy institutions treated mortgage customers, charging existing customers 32 basis points more on average than new customers, which feels a lot like a loyalty tax. And what Nathan and Michael were seeing was a huge opportunity in levering technology to take all the complexity out of the process. They also recognised that there was room to innovate on the funding side of the business because pension or superannuation funds were acquiring giant pools of money that they needed to invest. Nathan and Michael thought, why not in mortgages? So 
three sort of big disruptions that were sort of the context and then three things that we're doing to actually take advantage of those. So first one is, and I suspect it's like a large part of the portfolio is, it is a story around technology disruption. And so real opportunities to use technology just to take out cost, to make life simpler. And you know, the way we can sustain lower pricing is we don't have the bank branches and we don't have all of the overheads and other costs, manual paper-based processes. Second, there's then a crisis of trust. And you know, clearly been a big focus on things like the Royal Commission in Australia, where people are feeling like there's a loyalty tax. The more loyal and longer you are with the bank, the more you get charged. And people think that's fundamentally unfair. And finally, this idea that you know, banks write mortgages because they've got a funding pool, which is deposits. But funding pools outside of deposits, things like superannuation, are growing much, much faster and are actually already much, much bigger. And so you've got this very complex funding chain that's optimised around the old model, which will always be important but less using technology to take advantage of some of how the new funding model. So technology, trust and funding with sort of the, the disruptions. And they realised that perhaps a digital native online mortgage lender was the way to solve this problem. And so what we then saw was how do we use that to create a single platform that can end-to-end manage the, the totality of a mortgage process? So really a full-stack platform. So we're talking about the acquisition of customers stepping through all of the origination and underwriting, servicing the mortgages themselves, and then funding those components. And in Legacy Player, there might be something like 30 underlying systems supporting that set of business processes. Lots of manual paper-based processes and re-keying between them, lots of operational risk and complexity. And so first point is around just the opportunity to get efficiency and simplicity through technology by looking at that end-to-end of the value chain between the borrower needs and the funder needs, and how do we become a double-sided business between them? The second is Australia is quite an early adopter of digital in most parts of their life, but mortgages is a real exception. It's only about 3% of mortgages that are written online, and you know, 60% are going through a mortgage broker. Most of the rest are going through a banker of some kind, and that's an incredibly expensive process. So you know, average broker origination is something like $6,500. By moving that to being a fully digitized process, we can do that for a, a fraction of the cost. And I should be clear, I hadn't done any work at all in mortgages before then. So that was, it was less an insight of someone deep in the space. I was more personally coming in from the point of view of having worked in how do you create a digital proposition around a bunch of other financial products. And they, in the end, had been largely products for wealthy people, right? That's investing in marginal loans and all the rest. And what I loved about this idea was it was a real opportunity to create value much more for the broad community. It was a little bit more mass market than some of these sort of good stuff for affluent people, which is what I've been doing up to that point. And it was at this point that the duo caught up for coffee in Melbourne. It was one of those incredibly exciting lightning bolt striking type conversations where you come away and go and sleep the next night, wake up the next morning. That was still a good idea, right? Michael agrees. I'd spent a fair amount of my career working on mortgages and I saw firsthand the power of some of the simplicity and of pricing strategies and what they could deliver when NAB really made a good inroad into the mortgage market in 2010, 2011. I worked in Korea on mortgages, in New Zealand pricing mortgages. So I'd spent a lot of time thinking about the pricing and the processes and the technology, et cetera. What I hadn't really paid much attention to is the whole funding piece. So when Nathan had had sort of brought this concept of how different a world in which you could tap into capital markets to fund mortgages and it could look quite differently. 
in Australia, that was really a light bulb. And that was that conversation where, where Nathan actually brought that concept and a light bulb went off. And I just remember saying, Nathan, I would quit tomorrow to do this with you because that's amazing. So I can really clearly remember that moment. And from there on in, we, we made up our minds pretty quickly. It was really became more logistically, how do we you know, resign gracefully and, and get going on it? But they had one final vital conversation to have. In some ways, it was that fascinating moment of going from very first doodles in February to probably the toughest conversation to have in the entire process of fronting up to our respective wives and pitching the idea of saying, you know how I've been sort of earning a salary at a big bank for the last 10 years? Well, (laughs) I've got this cool guy called Michael and we want to go and do something fun together. (laughs) And so that was very interesting, very detailed due diligence type conversation. In the end, the first three investors they pitched signed on. And the day after gardening leave ended, they closed their seed round. And then they were away. I mean, I think we had the right instinct, which was to get going on immediately on building the platform. You think about the three things we need to do, right? Build a mortgage platform, fund the mortgages, and then sell the mortgages. And I think what we, what we didn't do was make it all about the admin side of things, like we needed a credit license, but let's not you know, you need a tennis racket to win Wimbledon, right? But when you buy a tennis racket, you're hardly on the way to the Wimbledon title, right? I think where we made some really good decisions was to concentrate on getting tech resources in who understood the mortgage origination process, who mapped out their journey end to end, and we started building. And that allowed us to bootstrap and then raise more monies. And in parallel with that, try and stitch up the debt funding side. One of the most unusual decisions they made was one that struck me right away in our first meeting with them. They had hired probably the most senior team we've ever seen for a brand new paper-based startup. The former CIO from Atlassian, the co-founder from Ubank, the GM of Customer Journeys at NAB. This team was legit, and they hadn't even finished wireframing their landing pages. Yeah, so one way we, we often talk about it is almost the two ways you can approach building talent is, do you start from the top down or do you start from the bottom up? And so a lot of startups have almost a bottom-up approach, which is what can the founders do as much as possible? And then almost what's the minimum number of team members I need to get myself to the next level? And then often you're faced with this idea that as you get to that next level in, you know, completing a startup or moving to scale up, you need to bring in more senior people. And in a sense, in many cases, that ends up layering some of the early members of the team. You're hiring more senior people to go and run the team the level below. So in some ways, it's almost start with the bottom level of talent and then layer folks on top. We very much came in with the opposite view, a top-down view, which is what is the team that we want who could run this business when it's a listed multi-billion dollar company and how do we bring as much of that team in from day one? The other piece, and credit to you, Nathan, because that bit around the values and the culture, I think we faced into that right from day one. And it's, I think it's easy for a value set and culture to get away from you if you're not really consciously managing it. So I remember very early in the, in the journey, we sat down and said, what do we value and what do we stand for and what do we want our culture to look like? And when we hired doers, right? So we, yes, we hired se- a senior team, but they were people who could roll up their sleeves and actually execute on their own when push came to shove. Someone like Joe Sasha, he ran 1,300 people in his last job at NAB. He came out of Athena, he didn't have anyone. He was a doer, Myra, Pete, they're all people who roll up their sleeves and actually get stuff done even before they have team members. But beyond getting the leverage of additional brilliant team members, they really believed this strategy gave them an advantage, specifically in the fintech world. 
But I think why we're trying to do that is that vision around ultimately journey of the startup is to successfully get you to scale up. You need to have an incredibly clear vision about what success looks like at the point you're in those later stages of the journey to really inform the right sequencing of activity, the right work and focus during the startup steps. And so exactly coming back to the examples that Mike was talking about, I mean, we talk about being full stack and sort of looking at the end to end of a mortgage business. There is some real complexity in that. You need great marketing capability. You need, you know, product design and engineering working incredibly tightly together. You need folks who can run a call center and credit. You need be able to manage the risk. You need to be able to raise funds. It's, it's a fairly complex set of steps. We wanted to get really best in class across each of those. And in many cases, they were people who had been there, done that in large corporate environments, actually had the gray hair and the experience, but were also had the stretch to be able to operate in a very different environment. And to some extent, that's probably partly a little bit about the kind of business we're in. It's a highly regulated category. It's not a Facebook move fast and break stuff type business. You really do need to get to some real quality standards right from day one. And I think also having come from both of us working in large organizations for a long period of time, we we did have the privilege of sort of really knowing here's some great talent that we can bring in. And, you know, part of that, the, literally who are folks who are around the rickety circular table on, on the very first day, we'd all worked with directly. And then fairly quickly, there were some others that were probably one, one level removed that we had very, very strong referrals of talent coming in. By having such a strong team so early, it gave Nathan and Michael the space to crack the problems only they could solve. No doubt. I mean, you'd look at the even fundraising activities, Nathan and I, both on the debt side and the equity side, we have been able to dedicate a lot of time to what are, what are really time-consuming processes of building relationships with debt and equity investors. And the reason we've been able to you know, dedicate that time to that activity is that we've got people on the LT who are just you know, furiously building an incredible platform without the need for much, you know, intervention. It also made their jobs way more fun. That means we're not the compliance team on talent, we're the sales team, right? So we're, we're about meeting with folks and convincing them we're the place to go. And I think that comes into trust in the capabilities, but also a really crystal clear idea about what is it that we want to stand for and what do the values look like. Now, one of the things I do besides make this podcast is create spaces for our founders to get together with other brilliant people. Mostly they're private groups and we don't publicize this work at all. And at one of these dinners, co-founder Tony was there and this was the context for Nathan's next comment. And it's funny, I've had dinners with Tony a couple of times and we, you know, the fact that we continue to put down exactly the same team slide like year after year and, you know, the last time I, I met with him, it was literally the bet to say this slide will look exactly the same in 12 months' time. Because to some extent, I think that is one of the real challenges of large organisations where you've got too much turnover, that ends up being an incredible handbrake on common understanding, focus, you know, getting things done. A big, big part of the success in talent is attracting that A-team in the top level and, you know, great talent attracts great talent. Over their journey, the Athena team have raised over $100 million to support their growth. And we spent some time talking through their biggest lessons from this process. The hardest part for me in, in all of the rounds, particularly Series A, was trying to gauge the, the actual level of interest. And it fluctuates wildly between thinking you, you, know, you don't have enough investors to complete your round to being well oversubscribed. And there is a little bit of a herd mentality with investors, which is what made, let's say, Paul Bassett's role so valuable for us in some of the rounds where he just put a stake in the ground and said, I'm investing this much at this value and then 
and people fell in behind that. So that was very valuable. But we we did have, I mean, the, probably the biggest challenge for us was not getting a firm view early on on what existing investors wanted to put down and then drumming up a lot of support for investment and then finding ourselves, you know, triple subscribed, which is on the one hand, a good problem to have, but you you feel like you're wasting people's time and so on. So we probably got better at that piece over the journey, wouldn't you say, Nath? I actually think this is one of the topics that for someone starting out, it's actually worth spending a lot of time talking to people who've gone through the journey because, frankly, the things that I now think of impo- are, are really important that I had zero clue about when we started this out isn't embarrassingly long. I think assessing a lot of other attributes than the weight of the wallet of an investor is absolutely critical. Like, So you end up with this point where the journey that you're going through has lots of moments of truth. And you are going to be in the end where you've got a much longer list of investors as you progress through as, as an enterprise. Having investors with integrity, who have a joint view about the desire for joint success without the game playing, getting things done, ability to execute quickly is such an incredible asset. There is this feeling that you're being interviewed and you've got to pitch to the investor. Just keep in the back of mind that they're pitching to you too and that understanding the track record of people that they have invested in before and what it looked like in good days and what it looked like in bad days is some of the most valuable due diligence conversations you'll ever have. Because in some ways, I think we got very lucky. The second one for me is around keeping things as simple as you possibly can. And there's always this desire to come up with some flourishes and complexity in the structure, particularly if you're working with lawyers who maybe haven't done it before, that they're going to be inventive and come up with something new. But the more that you're using very vanilla structures for how you actually approach that, so there's zero surprises when you get into DD that the documents you create in the seed round don't need major surgery to get into an A, B or C, ends up being incredibly valuable. And then probably the last one and probably the most important of all is being really thoughtful about the roadmap and what is the proposition going to be at each of those funding rounds. And it's probably one of the best meetings that Mike and I ever had was really early on just noting up on a whiteboard about here's what our proposition of the things we're going to need to do to close a seed. Here's what we want to have done between seed and series A and then B and C and really went all the way through. When I asked what was most helpful that a venture partner did during their round of funding, Michael reiterated how difficult it is to close rounds without an investor that's willing to lead the charge. I mean, I just think the role that Paul and Squarepeg played in the in the fundraising was was key to us, right? Because not only stepping into the breach, leading the rounds and basically getting the herd to follow, but also introducing us into people like Host Plus to do the co-investment. That was an incredible part of our journey, right? When we heard that Host Plus were, uh, were going to co-invest. The other piece of advice he had was a simple one. And maybe not try and optimise too much how much you raise in a given round. I think one of the things we've done is raised a little bit more than we necessarily set out to do in almost all of our rounds. And I think we've never regretted that, particularly when you look at what happened in 2020 and you see we just closed out our last $70 million round at the end of last year. That really set us up well to um, weather any storm that this this crazy year is throwing at us. And uh, so I think just making sure that you respect the cardinal rule of startups, which is don't run out of cash. Now that they have some serious cash in the bank, having closed a $70 million round last year with an award-winning team and some serious partnerships in place on the funding side, I asked what surprised them now that they're in the business. 
I think coming in, knowing that operating outside a sort of a legacy corporate knew it would be faster, I think I underappreciated just how big that gap was going to be, that when you get a smart team, some great talent, good underlying engineering and design and all the rest, just what is possible over what time frame. So we were very optimistic on that score. But that pacing, I think, has been incredibly exciting. And so that translated into what felt like this crazily audacious goal of saying we're going to write a billion dollars of loans in our first 12 months and then to beat that by 30%. That was like a little bit of a, you know, it felt like even having a B on a number was sort of a little bit of an audacious thing, thing to be doing. The other reflection was just how hard it was. The piece that we talk a lot about is crossing the chasm in this particular business, which is around how do you get your first few hundred million dollars to lend out? And that, that's a piece that perhaps Nathan and I both went in thinking it would be a little bit easier than it turned out to be. And we got there and, that, and well and truly got there now. And so we, we've got a, a momentum. But there are sort of, sort of certain things where you need to get to a certain scale before you can attract the funding. To get to a certain scale, you need to stitch up the funding. There's some real chicken and egg solutions in, in a mortgage business that I'm not sure we were fully appreciated going in. And while it's been hard, on the whole, both Nathan and Michael just have this sheer joy for what they're doing. And they kept coming back to how grateful they were, even for the hardest bits. Yeah, I mean, it's been an amazing journey. I, I think I expected it to be smaller for longer, I think. I think it's just, it's quite explosive really when you think about our growth. You know, I was tracking recently our HR count over the years when we started with just the four or five of us and, you know, we've got 90 people now a few years into the journey. So it's been the growth to a reasonable scale business has been really, really quick. And, you know, looking back, I'm sort of glad I was a little naive on some of what would be involved because I think if you take the leap knowing every single detail of every challenge you're going to face, you'd almost second guess the decision in the first place. That's it for this week's episode. You can find more information about the Athena team online at athena.com.au. If you want to hear more episodes like this, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to make my day, leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, find me and the Squarepeg team in all the regular places. Catch you next week.